Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Joshua Weiss. Joshua is a speaker, consultant, and a negotiation and conflict resolution expert. He is the co-founder, along with William Urey, of the Global Negotiation Initiative at Harvard University and a senior fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project. Joshua has designed and facilitated negotiation and conflict resolution solutions for businesses, global organizations, governments, and individuals. He's also the author of the books, Trouble at the Watering Hole and The Negotiator in You. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You are most welcome. It's my pleasure. Dr. Wise, can you tell me a little about your background, the work you do, and how you got interested in negotiation and conflict resolution? Sure. Well, I mean, it is a, like most uh, stories, um, <clears throat> it can be long or short. Um, I'll try to give you the abridged version. Um, but in essence, growing up, um, my grandmother, uh, one of the very powerful narratives that existed as a kid for me was that my grandmother left um, Poland. Uh, when she was 13 with one of her brothers when he was 15 and her family all died in the Holocaust. And so I, from an early age, you know, sort of knew that conflict and um, the the power of human beings to do very negative things was something that, you know, kind of captured me and captured my attention and made me think about some basic questions about human beings and human nature and things along those lines. And then um, when I was at uh, doing my undergraduate degree, I focused on um, thinking about things like the Holocaust and, and things along those lines. And then after university, um, I was talking to a friend of mine from high school and and we were sort of talking about where we're heading in life and things like that. And he said, you know, I just bought a round the world ticket. I'm going to go backpacking for a year. And I said, you are? And he said, yeah. And I said, um, do you want some company? And he said, that'd be great. And so we ended up sort of setting off on this journey. Um, and, you know, backpacking is not luxurious travel. It's, um, it's, you know, staying at places for a few dollars a night and really um, exploring the world in a different view, different lens. And I grew up near Boston and kind of a middle class kid. And so I didn't really um, have a tremendous view of the world from that vantage point. And as I got out there, and as I was traveling, um, not only did I have my world flipped upside down, but I found myself in a number of places where conflict was um, sort of around me quite a bit. Uh, and so, for example, I was in India, found myself on the edge of a, a Hindu-Muslim clash. Uh, and then I was in, um, as part of that trip, I was in um, former Yugoslavia as that was coming apart and then spent a month um actually trying to understand what happened to my grandmother's family. And so I went to um, four different concentration camps. And all of that sort of led me when I got home to kind of feel like there was an obligation that I had to do something to try to make the world a slightly better place. And and when I began to think about how to do that, I, I learned about sort of peace and conflict resolution. And it immediately sort of flew off the page at me as something that I needed to do. Uh, and that sort of set me down this road of, of dealing with conflict. And I tend to be a very practical person. Um, and so as I was studying about approaches to dealing with conflict, etc., cetera, um, I landed on negotiation and it was something that everybody understood. Everybody um, 
knew what negotiation meant, or at least to a large degree. And most people felt like they were folks who negotiated, whether it was at home or at work or in the world around them. And so I was drawn to that and drawn to helping people learn the skills of negotiation so that not only could their working relationships be better, but their relationships writ large would improve because they would know how to manage them. What were some of the things that you discovered that people would benefit from from negotiation? I think that, well, a couple of things. I mean, one, your mindset, um, you know, how you look at a problem, how you view what you're doing is tremendously important. You know, the old adage, if you, you know, see every problem as a nail, you use a hammer. And I feel like there's a lot of people in the world with that view and they don't know that if they were to think about the problem and the challenge in front of them differently, um, then they might view it, uh, what they're doing differently. So for example, you know, a lot of people <clears throat> associate the notion of conflict or the word conflict with a very negative connotation. And the reality is from my point of view, conflict happens because people see different worlds. They have different perspectives, they, etc. And so from where I sit, conflict um, it's kind of a natural part of the decision-making process. It's sort of rare if you and I see exactly the same thing. So it, it makes sense that we would see slightly different things. I think ultimately what makes conflict productive or destructive is do you have the skills and ability to manage it? And I think that's the other piece of this that from my point of view, when I teach people these skills and they learn them and, and wholeheartedly um, accept them and really make an effort to weave them into their life and their approach, they have success. And so I think it's, it's when you understand how to manage a situation that comes your way, um, you don't need to fear these things. Uh, you have a, you have a skill set. and like anything, you know, sometimes I say to folks, it's like when you go to take a test, if you're prepared, um, you know, you know, you're going to do okay. There's no anxiety, et cetera. And it's similar. If you learn the skills of negotiation of dealing with conflict, um, the students that I teach, the people that I train, they come away with a level of confidence saying, wait a minute, I think I can manage this. And so having that skill set is really vital. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that or they don't learn it. Um, and, you know, that's changing to a degree, but um, but there's still a lot of work to do. And, and like I said, when I end up working with people and they come to understand all of this from a strategic point of view, how do you actually guide a process, they really settle in and have a much different experience when it comes to these things. I think when a lot of people think of um, negotiation, they think of sales and business. And um, But what are some more examples of how we can use negotiation in more personal settings or in our relationships or throughout everyday life? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, well, negotiation is certainly something that happens in the working world with your bosses, coworkers, clients, subcontractors, whomever. Um, I mean, if you've ever been in any kind of relationship, you know, that's a, a big chunk of what you're doing is learning how to interact and relate to each other. So, I mean, I have three daughters uh, and, you know, I've sort of subtly taught them the skills of negotiation, whether it's, for example, one one concept that we have is called going to the balcony and going to the balcony means that when your emotions are beginning to get the better of you, you, um, let the other person know that, you know what, I think I need to 
sort of step away for a minute and try to think about where to go with this. So I taught that idea to my oldest daughter. And um, last year, I remember she and I were having a conversation and she was getting angry and frustrated. And she said, you know what, dad, I think I need to go to the balcony and let's come back to this in an hour. And, you know, for me, that showed a level of maturity and a le- and and the fact that, and she was 16. So, you know, it showed that kids, if they're taught this, can certainly deploy it and utilize it. Um, and I mean, I'm a firm believer, you know, that, um, the best marriages are ones where people learn to negotiate with each other. And when I say negotiation, you know, a lot of times people think about compromise or things like that, where you have to give something up. And to me, that's not the essence of negotiation. The essence of negotiation is understanding what's really important to the other side and then seeing if there's a way to try to meet that need that they're expressing. And so to, like compromise is a lazy way to negotiate in any relationship, whether it's business at home or in the world, because you're not really understanding, nor are you really exploring what matters to the other side. We make assumptions a lot about what's important to them, but we don't actually ask and we don't probe and we don't um, take the time to really figure that out. You know, it's interesting to me, a lot of people feel a need to try to rush through negotiation, rush through the process. And I always say to folks, slow down, like, where are you going? You need to get this right. Take your time to really understand what's driving the other person. What's their motivation? What's so important to them? And when you do that, um, in whatever relationship you have, you will uncover what's really happening for people. Um, and there's a lot, you know, as you know, human beings are complex creatures. And so we have tangible needs, but we also have intangible things like respect and our identity and, and things along those lines. And so, um, and, and those are the things that often drive people's behavior. It's not always the dollars and cents and things like that. It's much more about who we are as people. And, and perhaps there's a challenge to our identity or, um, the notion of saving face is important, um, in any culture. Um, we might call it a slightly different thing, but we're all, you know, that idea of respect and things along those lines, are at the heart of, of effective negotiation. And so to me at the home, in homes, you know, with your spouse or your kids, that's what you've got to be listening for. Those are the things that enable you to have productive relationships and still disagree and still have challenges, but to get to somewhere constructive in the end. That's awesome. You mentioned assumptions and how, um, as human beings, we'll make assumptions about what somebody else wants. Um, I've also experienced what people project or I've done it or I've had people do it to me where they sort of project what they think the other person wants. Um, how does somebody who's listening to this who might not have very much or any formal training negotiation begin to put in a practice where they can really start to understand where another human being's coming from? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, um, to me, assumptions are one of those silent problems in negotiation. There are others, like our perspective that we bring to the table. But assumptions are, um, are, are a significant barrier to successful negotiation because we don't even know we're doing it. And I think that's the challenge, right, is that we start down a road and we begin to think, okay, well, uh, what did they mean by that? And we start to add meaning. And before we know it, you know, we've gone off in a different direction, or if we assume negative intent, 
you know, there's a problem in negotiation that we call the in, the impact and the intent and impact problem, right? Which is that I go into a negotiation perhaps with a certain intention that's productive, and yet um, the impact on you is negative. So, for example, all you have to do is think of a time when maybe you were trying to be respectful to someone and they took it as disrespect. It's happened to all of us. So, um, so we have to be very clear about the role of things like assumptions, those silent things that impact and. You know, there's a lot of psychological biases and other kinds of things that impact our thinking when it comes to negotiation um, that we're, most people are not aware of. Uh, in fact, in the master's degree that I lead um, in that program, one of the classes that we have very specifically is the psychology of leadership and negotiation. And the students come away saying, whoa, like, I can't believe I got to this point in my life without understanding all of these biases and things that are impacting me. So one tool that I, that I found to be incredibly helpful is something called the ladder of inference. It was developed by a guy named Chris Ardris, um, who was at MIT and at Harvard um, over the years. And basically, the ladder of inference talks about how each person has a ladder. And we start at the bottom of that ladder, and we have information that's coming at us that we take in. But as you move your way up the rungs of the ladder, you only focus on certain parts of that information. Um, and then you start to add assumptions and make and meaning to what you've seen. And once you start to do that, that's when your understanding, your perspective on things begins to deviate from the other. So I would recommend to folks um, to to look up the ladder of inference. There's actually a nice little TED Ed um, that was made uh, about the ladder of inference to help people to understand um, how it is that people, you know, can be looking at the same information but drawing very different conclusions and a big chunk of that is the assumptions that we make what we've been told the story that we've learned over the years that helps us to sort of figure out where to go with life I mean, it's very normal and natural to make assumptions it's just that you have to be aware of it and 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 kind of turn on your assumptions checker you know one of the exercises that i do with people that i coach in conflict or negotiation else i'll say to them Let's take your scenario. And I said, I want you to create two columns on a piece of paper. And in the first column, I want you to write down everything you think that's going on, you know, whether the other side has confirmed it or not. And then I want you to write down all of the things the other side has confirmed or told you that's part of the process. And usually, you know, that first column is twice as long as the second because those are the assumptions we're making about what's going on. So those are a couple of tools. I think the most important thing that people can do is be aware that we do this all the time. It's normal, but to check your assumptions and say, wait a minute, um, did they actually say that? Or am I inferring from what they said X, Y, and Z? It's interesting. I was having a, a conversation with a buddy of mine yesterday and he was talking about how he does this in relationships. He'll make assumptions about who the person is and what their values are. And then later on, as he discovers more about them, he'll become disappointed disappointed in that in the assumption that he was making or no like um the example he was using was he was talking about morality and dating somebody and how he had didn't realize that he had projected certain things on her and then uh at one point she was talking about how she was she had dated somebody who was married and he was just like what the fuck what, what do you mean you you like how could you do that and he goes I, I realized that i wasn't really listening to her or asking questions i had started to put a series of assumptions or projections onto her about who she was as a human being without understanding who she really was. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we do that. I mean, there's you know there's some interesting research that suggests that you know we sort of make up our minds about the person that we're dealing with within the first sixty seconds that we meet them, and and you know when that's the case, of course we're going to be making assumptions, and the longer we're with that person, the more we begin to see a clearer picture of who they really are. Right. You talked about these silent assumptions, but you also mentioned perspective and biases. Uh, you mentioned narrative. Maybe you could break some of these down further or, or talk about some of the other silent problems that, in negotiation that yeah, people just don't necessarily see or are aware of. Sure. I mean, there's a lot, you know. Um, and so, for example, one that I think m- most of us do um, is called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias means that we look for information um, that that confirms the perspective we already bring to the table or that confirms our argument and we push aside the things that that don't um and you can obviously see how that's problematic um but there are other things that also push us down roads that um ultimately are sort of quote unquote irrational um so for example there's a psychological concept called entrapment um not the police kind um but the psychological notion of entrapment basically means that through sunk costs, time, investment, and things like that, we um, ultimately be, can become entrapped by our own behavior to keep kind of investing in something that is uh, not worth investing or that it no longer makes a whole lot of sense to do. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, so years ago, and, and for some of your younger listeners who will have never experienced this, I'll try to paint a, a little bit of a picture here. But years ago, when, when you would call up to make an airline reservation, right, um, you would, this was really kind of, I think, in many ways before the web and doing everything online, you would call up and they would, you know, you would be on hold and you would be waiting for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And after a while, um, you might decide, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't feel like waiting anymore. And you sort of make the decision to hang up. Um, and, or you, in your mind, you say, okay, you know, I've invested 20 minutes now. I've been on the phone. I can't hang up now because I would have just wasted that 20 minutes of my life. Um, so that's one way of thinking it. The other is to say, you know, okay, I'm going to hang up. And yet, even when you're hanging up, you're like, your ear is coming down with the phone <laughs> to the very last second, hoping that somebody will will answer so that your time wasn't wasted. So being entrapped by your behavior means that we invest time. And after a certain point, point it doesn't make sense to keep investing. And yet we, we get pulled in um, in a way that, um, that causes us to do different things. So for example, like, if I've invested a certain amount of time on a project and the project is failing, um, sometimes entrapment will push us down a road of staying with that as opposed to saying, I should really stop working on this. I mean, negotiations can do that as well. You know, <clears throat> sometimes people will, uh, you know, have invested quite a bit of time in a negotiation and based on what's in front of them, they really should be walking away and saying, I don't think this is going to work. And sometimes people actually will agree to something um, just because of the amount of time and and resources they put into it. And so those concepts weigh on us and they cause us to make poor decisions. 
Um, and wrapped in that, and what makes negotiation so hard for most people is the emotional side of things. Um, you know, the the world of negotiation, while it's as old as human beings, um, the study of negotiation sort of happened and began in the early 1950s in the world of economics. Uh, and the model that people talked about was sort of a rational actor model that, you know, because that's sort of how economics works, that people will do things in their rational manner. But the, <clears throat> the point that's important to take away was that the advice at that point was you really need to keep emotions out of negotiation. And behavioral psychologists and others started to enter the scene and say, wait a minute, um, sorry, but I don't know if you've noticed that people are both logical and emotional and creatures. And so, you know, if I were to say to you, keep a logic out of the process, you'd say you're a moron. Um, well, it's the same notion when it comes to emotions. You can't keep emotions out. And in fact, when you try to suppress them, that's when they come back and are their most negative. Um, so if I, you know, when I talk to people about emotions and negotiations, immediately they go to anger, right? That's what they think. They think anger, frustration, whatever. They don't think of the positive emotions that drive us, the passion that we have and things like that. So instead of trying to push aside emotions and keep them out, you're much better off embracing negotiations in an emotional intelligence kind of way, which is really what emotional intelligence is all about, is how do I bring emotions, how do I become aware of them? How do I become aware of them in the other person? And how do I bring them into the process in a manner that enables me to have them without them having me? And that's a big difference, right? I'm having my emotions with some control, like I'm recognizing them, I'm not denying them, but I'm saying, wow, I'm really angry right now. Why is that? Like, what is it that's making me so frustrated? And when you have your emotions in that way, you do it with some control and you can bring those into the process in a manner that says to the other person, listen, you know what? Um, I'm pretty offended by what you just said and I need to let that sink in, something like that, right? And and so um, that is one of the biggest challenges that we face and I think you can see as well in the broader society that we live in, you know, we've moved into um, a pathos kind of notion um, a la Aristotle. So pathos is the emotional realm right so aristotle talked about three things that are part of a persuasive argument in his book rhetoric he talked about logos pathos and ethos and logos is logic pathos is the emotion and ethos is your credibility your trust and and you know for me when i look around in society and i look at the societal negotiations that we seem to be having or not having um they used to be logically based um to a large degree but now facts um um, have been challenged. And so we are now in a pathos realm. We are in an emotional realm that is not um, enabling emotion, emotions to come in effectively. Um, they're being utilized in a way that is dividing us further and pulling us apart. Um, but emotions can be brought in and in that emotionally intelligent way to help you to negotiate and manage your way through those difficult places in negotiation. But I think for folks who are not used to negotiating and whether it's at work or at home or in the world around you, one thing I would really want them to understand is that you can't push aside negotiation or you can't push aside emotions in negotiation. You've got to learn the, the skills of emotional intelligence and then bring those to bear in a negotiation. I mean, you sort of, I mean, you began to touch on this, but if somebody 
feels like they're in a relationship that the negotiations are driven emotionally and and they want to tone that down or figure out how to utilize that in a way that's going to be more constructive to the relationship. What should they do? One of the questions I ask myself is how do we step back and move into uh, a conversation that's healthier or healthier form of negotiation? And I can see this also playing out on a personal level. So do you have any thoughts on that? Well, again, you know, I mentioned the idea of the balcony. Um, I, I would really recommend that people embrace that idea uh, because, you know, what we find in negotiation in particular is that people make their biggest mistakes in those moments, in the moment where their emotions are taking them over. And so when you learn to step away, um, we talk to people about developing a balcony technique, some way of reminding yourself that, hey, I think I just was triggered and I really need to not say and do what it is that would feel good right now. Um, and so that can be stepping away. I often, you know, in, in my negotiations, whether it's at home or with my kids, um, my spouse, or, you know, in, in my professional context, um, I almost never say yes in the moment because I find that that's where I uh, come to regret uh, the decision. And so I will often, you know, when things are maybe getting a little heated or when, even when an offer's in front of me, whatever it might look like, I'll usually say, you know, I'd really like some time to kind of think about this before I make a decision. And for me, when you step away and you have the benefit of time and thinking, um, you gain clarity. And so I would encourage people to find a way to step away, to not feel the pressure to decide in the moment, um, which is what a lot of people feel. There are a lot of people out there who are who experience negotiation dealing with conflict um, as an anxiety producing event. And in fact, there was a, a sort of an informal study on LinkedIn of 8,500 people and what they found was 37% of men and 26% of women were comfortable negotiating, which means there's an awful lot of people who aren't. And so one of the key tools for managing this stuff well is to learn to kind of step away and say, okay, um, I need to pull back here so that I can think about where to take this conversation. And I think if so, you know, if you get an inflammatory comment on Facebook or, you know, which I again, you know, there are some negotiations that are happening at a societal level there. Don't respond, like walk away and think about it. And, you know, one of the things that I do um, in it as well is that I try to think about what are some questions that I might be able to ask the other side to try to understand more of what they're saying to me. Um, and so I often when I'm in that mode, I'll come back with a question, which also gives me some time to think about, you know, where do I want to take this? Um, and why? When you step away, are you stepping away as a form of habit? Are you stepping away because your emotions, you, you feel your emotions in your body and they're activated and you don't think that you can, or you don't feel like you can, uh, you would make the optimal choice. Do you feel like what's happening? Yeah, I think it's both of those things. I think it's both. I, I feel like I can feel, um, you know, we have a physical response to all of this that goes back to sort of the um, <clears throat> hunter-gatherer, fight-or-flight mechanisms within us. And so, you know, it's interesting because when you understand that that's still instinctual um, and that still exists within us, then you ask yourself, so wait a minute. So when I get in that mode, if I if I do have a heightened sense and I'm feeling my heart racing and things like that. Um, 
it's interesting to ask what's happening physiologically to you. And in fact, what's happening physiologically is when you're when you're triggered or you're in that fight or flight mode, which is you know, what happens when the emotions start to run in a manner that could send us into an uncontrolled place, um, the body, the blood in your body rushes from all throughout your body to your core initially, and then it's distributed to your hands and your feet to either fight or flee. And of course, the problem with that is, you know, as we know, blood carries oxygen through the body and there's no blood in your brain. And so you're quite likely to make your biggest mistakes when you're in that heightened sense to sort of relieve the anxiety. You might say yes, and then walk out of the room and kick yourself. I think most of us have done that at one point or another. And so when you step away, you'll begin to feel your body changing and kind of settling back down which enables you to you know, take some deep breaths, whatever it is, to redistribute the oxygen throughout your body so you can think clearly. And so I think it's both. I think it's both that physical reaction, but then also the processing of what's happening that's important um, when you step away. When somebody's stepping away to sort of process a choice, right? You talked about asking questions, and to me that's almost a, a meditative process. Um, what types of things should they be thinking about or doing in their time away in order to come back and negotiate better or communicate better? Well, <clears throat> I tend to, um, a lot of the things that I do when I'm sort of up on the balcony, I'll ask myself some questions like, do I really know what's motivating the other person uh, and why? Like, is there alignment here? Is it possible that you know, I mentioned the intent and impact problem. Is it possible that, you know, maybe their intention was different than I'm um, perceiving and that I need to go back and ask them, what are they, what are they trying to achieve? Where are they trying to take this conversation or this negotiation? Um, so it's a, it's a number of questions that I often will, you know, when I'm on the balcony, I'll ask myself and then I'll use that as a preparation tool to go back in and say, you know, so I know we ended here. Uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's what's most critical to you in this conversation, et cetera. Um, but having thought through on my own, what are some of those things that are important to me and why? Um, so I do a bit of, and, and often, you know, I'll ask myself, because I think in any negotiation, it's it's fundamentally important to be very clear about what it is that you want in your mind. Um, you, you need to know what your why is, right? But the other piece of this is that negotiation is an interdependent relationship. I need them to say yes to what it is that I want in order to get where I want to go. And so I have to empathize. I have to say if I was them, you know, what would I be thinking? What do I really need to get out of this? And if you don't know the answer to that question, then that's where you need to start. And you need to probe and say, you know, um, I was trying to give a little bit of thought to what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I wasn't sure, like, I don't know what you're still aiming for. What's most important to hear. Are you willing to share that something along those lines um, and utilize it in that way? One of the things that, that comes up as I'm listening to you talk about this is sometimes when I go into, and when I'm talking about negotiation now, I'm thinking about this, like not in a business sense, but just sort of life communication, conflict resolution, the way that you're describing in that context. But sometimes I don't, necessarily know my intent until there's some friction like it's through the process of that negotiation of that conflict that I start to gain clarity around what I want I thought I wanted one thing 
And then I realized actually what I'm looking for, or actually what I think I need is something else. And I didn't recognize that before. And it's the conflict that, that uncovered that. Is that something that you have experienced in your research? Well, I mean, negotiation and dealing with conflict, it is a bit of an iterative process, but I think that the key and, and part of what you're saying, and, and from my point of view, is that most people don't spend nearly enough time preparing to deal with a conflict or a negotiation situation. You know, the, a lot of the people that I work with who, again, are, you know, in this sort of professionally, I'll ask them, you know, how much time, if you were to take a negotiation from the very beginning when you start thinking about it to the actual process to the implementation, you know, how much time do you spend in the preparation phase? They'll say probably 75%. And so I would say to you that in part, um, I wouldn't say it's a failure to prepare, but I don't think we, most of us adequately prepare, adequately really take the time to sit down and think, what is it that I really want to get out of this and keep drilling down until I get there so that I'm clear about that. Um, it's certainly possible and, and can happen where, you know, as you go, some of that will change. And that's why, you know, I often talk to the folks that I work with, um, the students and people I train and, and companies and organizations, and et cetera. I talk to them and, and, and I often quote Dwight Eisenhower, who said that plans are useless, but planning is everything. And I firmly believe that when you're in a negotiation or a conflict related process, that <clears throat> if you walk in with a plan, you're in trouble because the other side is not reading your playbook and doesn't do what you would like them to do. Um, but if you adequately go through the planning process, then you're going to be prepared when the process goes in one way and not another, you're not going to get nervous. So what happens a lot of time when people enter a situation with a plan with where they want to take something and it doesn't go there, that's when they start to get nervous. That's when they start to lose confidence, et cetera. So instead of having a plan, you go through the planning process. I often equate it to playing chess. You know, when I, when I, my dad was big into chess and when I learned to play a little bit of chess, what I learned was if they do this, I do that. If they do this, I do that. And what it was, was a series of contingencies. And <clears throat> that way of thinking is very applicable to negotiation. And it gives you a way of saying, okay, um, I'm sort of prepared for the potential responses, the potential ways in which this process could go without being very tied to one or the other, uh, a very specific way of doing things. Cause that specific way doesn't often happen. You know, one of the things that I find is that when I go into a process, if I have an idea of how I think it will unfold, it almost never goes that way. Um, <laughs> no matter what you do. Uh, and so you have to be prepared. You have to adapt. You know, there's some interesting work, um, in both sort of the leadership and negotiation realm. There was a book by, Ron Heifetz at, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, who talked about, it's called Leadership Without Easy Answers, and then it was followed by another book, Leadership on the Line. And for him, like what he talks about, there are two kinds of problems that um, leaders face. There are technical problems and adaptive problems. So technical problems are problems that are very clear, and the answer and the solution is very clear. Adaptive problems are problems that are not really clear. You're not exactly sure what's going on or what's happening. And the solution is not clear that you have to kind of work your way through it in order to begin to see the beginnings of a solution. And similarly in negotiation, one of my colleagues at Harvard Business School, a guy named Mike Wheeler, 
wrote a book called The Art of Negotiation. And in that book, he basically says that in order to be a successful negotiator, you need to learn the skills of improv, basically thinking quickly on your feet, um, recognizing that people are giving you information if you're really listening to it and picking up on those things. So, so for me, you know, it negotiation is a dance. It's a way of listening carefully to what's happening and, but going into that dance prepared, right? I mean, if you know how to do the tango, you're in good shape. If you don't, you're not. <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing in negotiation. Dating coach Chris Lona here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Makes me think of a couple of things, and the one that's most prominent uh, in my mind is uh, a friend of mine who's in the special forces, and he says, you know, we prepare and we prepare and we prepare and we prepare for war, but there's a sort of a saying that the battle plans are thrown out at first contact, and he's like, it's all preparation, but he goes, once you actually get into the situation, like it never goes the way that you planned. It's just like, it's all about uh, preparing for the different things that could come up. And the second thing I thought about was this idea of control. And I think that, or I feel like a lot of people, when they plan for something, if it doesn't go the way that they plan it, it produces a lot of anxiety for them. And they try to control and might uh, control the situation to get frustrated or angry or scared. And, and that can sort of taint the communication. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think so on the special forces, I've, I've uh, actually worked with some folks in similar kind of kind of roles. And one of the things that they also so they do talk a lot about planning, but they also talk about the OODA loop, which is a which is a basically a respond, observe and respond and react. It's, it's basically a recognition that there's a lot of stuff that happens in the field that you didn't prepare for, you couldn't prepare for you. And so you've got to use a process like the OODA loop to, um, to, 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 you know, manage that situation. So I think that's for sure. And in terms of control, look, the, the, my experience is this, the tighter you hold things, the harder it gets. Um, you know, we, um, often talk about holding things lightly and being able to, I think the people who can kind of go with the flow and adapt and adjust are much more comfortable dealing with negotiation and conflict and sort of embracing the chaos, if you will, of the process, because it is a chaotic process. Like you cannot script these things. 
Um, because they're, as I said, they're interdependent. And again, we're just, you know, so far we've sort of been alluding to the fact that this is like with one person, but there are multi-party challenges as well. And if you try to control that, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have a process and you don't suggest ways of approaching things. Like, I don't want people to come away confused by that. Um, but what it does mean is if you hold tightly to a way of doing things, um, it, that will usually backfire and, and as you say, the re the typical response when things are are slipping through your fingers is to try to hold tighter, and instead of letting go and saying, "Okay, wait a minute, I got to let this go and see where it goes," um, and be comfortable with that. Um, and it's not easy. Uh, that's where you know, for example, this notion and the mindset of improv comes in, because it's saying, "Hey, um, let it go. Like you'll be able to find your way." And some of that comes with confidence. It comes with knowing and feeling like you can manage a process. And I think that's what, for me, that's what I try to help the people that I work with to do is to say, okay, I understand how negotiation processes generally work. And I'm sort of now feeling more comfortable about this whole endeavor. So if something doesn't go where I want to, I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to say, okay, let's see where this goes. I don't have to make, but again, in that, let's see where this goes. Don't make a decision in the moment because you will not have thought through all the consequences of it. So that's, again, we're back to, you know, see where things evolve to and then step away and say, let me think about what's going on here. You know, I used to work with um, a guy and really nice guy and kind of a tech expert. And I remember the first time we were meeting, we were in a group and we were talking and I said, well, do you think this would be possible? And he just sat there for what seemed like, you know, ever, but it was probably about 10 seconds. And I said, is everything OK? And he goes, yeah, I'm just thinking I'm thinking about what you said. And, you know, we need to when, when you're dealing with negotiation and conflict, you need to think and you need to not be so afraid of silence. Um, you know, people in our society tend to think that the minute someone stops talking, there's a problem. And that's not always the case. And in fact, if you can embrace silence and say, you know what, let me just think about this. Like, give me five minutes to get a coffee and think about what we're doing. Um, you'll find you're going to make far less mistakes because that's all it takes to move you away from some of these dynamics like time pressure and other kinds of things that push down on us. I, I would even extend that. It's not just talking, it's doing. Yeah. Right. Like uh, whether it's somebody's checking their their social media or they're doing something like we, we tend to fill, try to fill all time with something. And as a, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's a form of suppression. Um you talked a little about listening in your book, The Negotiator and You, you talk about four important skills that apply to virtually all forms of negotiation. Um, I'm wondering if you can describe some of these because one of them was the important or is the importance and challenge of effective listening. Yeah, well, I mean, listening, you know, it's very funny because I would say that I think listening is is probably the one thing that people think they're really good at that they're not. Um and most people say, yeah, yeah, listening, I got it. But, you know, uh, really listening to something, there's obviously a big difference between hearing words coming in and really listening to what someone's trying to tell you. Um, and I think the biggest, the biggest challenge that we face when it comes to listening is our, the internal conversation. So when we're negotiating with somebody, if somebody says something that we don't agree with, in our mind, we immediately say, wait a minute, that's not right. How did they reach that conclusion? And what are all the things that I can tell them to help them understand why they're wrong? 
um, and why that's not the correct perception or the correct notion. And of course, while you're doing all of that, you have no longer heard the other things that they're telling you. And so most of us engage in that because most of us are, so one of our defaults in particularly in our society is to, is to kind of be in debate mode. Like in my mind, there are two kinds of conversations that we can have. There's debate mode and there's dialogue mode. Debate mode is when I listen for the holes in your argument and then I try to tell you why you're wrong and here's the problem with that. Uh, and then there's dialogue mode and dialogue mode is where I'm really listening to you to really try to understand what you're telling me, what's important to you, etc. And so first of all, if I'm in debate mode, I'm definitely not going to hear what matters. Um, and second of all, um, if I am in, in debate mode, that internal conversation is going to kick in and I'm going to stop listening. So, I mean, one way to really try to manage that is, um, is to, to really write things down. So as someone's telling you things, um, you're writing them down, which sort of forms a bit of a way of acknowledging what's important, you know, letting them know that you're actually writing down things that matter to them. Um, but also, you know, our concern is if we don't kind of challenge that point that they made that, that we don't feel like is accurate, that, that it's going to become truth. So one of the things that I do is I'll just put a star next to a concept or a word that, you know, that I want to discuss further with them. Um, and then I'll come back to that when they're done. And, and it's just a process of, um, you know, so when you're writing these things down and putting some stars around places that will help jog your memory in terms of what it is that you're wanting to discuss. Um, and so, you know, don't take listening for granted. I think a lot of people do. They think, of course, we all listen, don't we? And the reality is we don't. We don't ne listen nearly as well. And in fact, if we were, I think a lot of the problems that we have today would <laughs> would be lessened um, because we're genuinely hearing and listening for things that are under the surface. And, and I think also, you know, when people are, be we obviously deal with difficult people too in the world. And um, that can be a real challenge to listen to somebody who's being offensive or condescending or whatever. But, you know, myself and people in my world, you know, we sort of try to take it as the ultimate challenge and try to listen through the criticism for what it is that they're saying to us. And so if someone is saying, you know, that, that, you know, you didn't do a good job on this and you must be incompetent and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I'm hearing, okay, they think that my work failed or came up short. So I need to understand what part of that came up short. Uh, it's a difficult game to play, but it's an important one because, um, you know, as I tell folks, you have the ability to, to manage yourself. And I think that's the biggest thing um, that, that people struggle with. They'll say, they're making me so angry. And, um, you know, the reality is you let yourself um, become angry. You have the ability to say, okay, you know, why is this frustrating me? How do I manage that effectively? Sort of back to the emotional intelligence pieces of this. But they all fit together. Um, I think that, um, you know, and you have to be really careful when it comes to negotiation because when we communicate with each other, I'm kind of one of those people who, who thinks communication really should have been called miscommunication because that's more <laughs> likely what's actually going on most of the time. Um, and so from my point of view, it's incredibly hard to, you know, communicate effectively um, because there's a lot of places where that can go awry. 
And, um, and so that's one of the keys to negotiation is making sure that you are, you know, listening well, um, you know, there are techniques like repeating back what the person said to make sure you've got it and things like that, 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 you know, might be a bit cliche, but they are important because if you don't do that, uh, it's very easy for you to sort of think that you're headed down the same route and to find out that actually the other person isn't where you thought they would be. I, I've done a decent amount of mediating in my life. And that's one of the things I'm sort of always amazed by when we get to a place where we think we've agreed to something and I'll say to the party, so just could you summarize for me in your own words, what, what do you think we've agreed to? And I'm amazed how, how often, um, their perspectives differ pretty significantly on what we've agreed to. And if you don't, you know, sort of take the time to ask that question, then, you know, when you get to the implementation of whatever you've done, then those things come out. Um, so we have this idea of going slow to go fast, which is sort of slow the process down, make sure you're on the same page as the other person um, and to, you know, identify words. You know, a lot of times people will throw around words like fairness. Well, fairness can have many different definitions. And if you don't say, what do you mean by fairness? Because um, everybody thinks they're a fair negotiator or, or you know, they want to be treated fairly, but that can mean lots of things to lots of people. Some stuff that I feel like you're saying is so powerful. Um, a couple of things came up. One is when you mentioned the things that you agreed to and it's also the things that they think that they agreed to, right? And there's that miscommunication. And I also thought about um, when you said, like you mentioned, what is this person trying to say? And if I would appeal that onion back one more layer, it's what, what do they feel like they need that they're not getting? That's a good metaphor. Um, and, you know, um, as people are trying, one of the things that I often say to folks is if, you know, if you're confused about what's happening or uh, you don't know why the other side is doing something, you know, that means that there's an interest, there's a need that there that's still that's there that you don't understand. And you need to kind of keep probing, especially in that intangible realm that I mentioned before, whether it's related to, you know, someone's identity or them not looking uh, good if, you know, you reach some kind of solution, not knowing how they might take that solution back to their boss or somebody else and explain, you know, all of those things are more of the intangibles. And I think that when you're thinking about peeling back to the, la the layer of the, the onion, you want to be looking to that intangible realm more so than the tangible, the money, the things like that, because that's usually not what's getting in the way. I remember watching that video, the fog of war and uh, yeah. And he talks about um, Kennedy and is it Kershaw? Kershaw? Khrushchev, yeah. Khrushchev, yeah, and trying to figure out what it was that he really needed in order to de-escalate the crisis. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the reality is that for a lot of folks, you know, especially when you're dealing with difficult people, that's a very distasteful question to ask because maybe you don't want to know that. But, you know, you ask that question for yourself because you're trying to get where you want to go. It doesn't mean you're, you're callous or you don't care, but especially when you're dealing with a difficult person, you know, you need to understand where they're coming from really for your own sake, because you're trying to meet your interests. And, you know, that's one way of getting around the problem is saying, well, I don't like them. I don't even want to think about what would be important to them. Um, I get it. And yet, you know, this is an interdependent relationship and you need them to say yes to what you want. In the book, you also talk about the ability to gather to ask questions and gather information in a non-confrontational manner. Can you expand on that? Sure. So information uh, is the currency of negotiation. Um, the more you have, 
the more you understand and the more you have to work with. Um, and so, um, and this is true about any culture, for example, you know, so, um, in some cultures like the U S which is a low context culture, um, you know, we can ask directly, why do you need that? Right. Um, but in other places around the world, um, you can't, you have to be more indirect in a number of, uh, countries in Asia and other places in the, in the Arab countries as well. You know, it's a much more circumtuitous kind of conversation, um, in terms of trying to understand what's important to the other side. But it's critical to know that this notion of sort of underlying interests and needs exists in every place. And your challenge in negotiation is to uncover what that is. And I can tell you um, and your listeners that if you can think of a time, you know, when you were in a situation and you didn't know what was going on and then eventually something happened and more information came to light and you finally said, ah, that's why they were being so resistant. Well, that's because you haven't gotten down to the core of what's really driving them. And so, um, so what I often will do is I'll be listening and I'll be thinking, you know, what, what's really happening here? And I'll try to think of ways to ask questions. And, you know, for me, one, one way that's useful to kind of get my head around this is to think about from the other point of view, what is this person afraid of? Because when you change the conversation in your head and say, okay, they're not just being obstructionist or difficult, they're afraid of something. Because um, a lot of things that happen in negotiation can be boiled down to a concern or a fear of something happening or not happening. And if I can ask myself the question, so I wonder what they're afraid of. Are they afraid of this not working well? Are they afraid of going back to their boss and having to explain X, Y, and Z? Are they afraid of how this will look to you, to their friends, what? And that helps me to kind of ask questions. Um, for example, something like, you know, I sense that there's maybe more to the story here, or I sense that there's a concern that you have that you haven't shared with me. Could you, or are you willing to? Um, that's one way to go at it. The other way to try to do this is to put yourself out there first. Um, because my rule in general in negotiation and dealing with conflict is I'm not going to ask the other person to do something that I wouldn't do. So I will often say to them, look, um, here's a concern that I have about risk in this situation. Um, do you have any as well? Right. And that opens up the door for them to say or do something. And again, part of this is how you approach a situation. And, you know, this is where relationships become important because if I don't know somebody, I can't just dive in with something like that. Um, it takes a little bit of time when I do know someone, you know, and I've got a bit of a relationship, I can say, listen, Carol, you know, you and I've worked together for a long time or to your spouse or to your kids, like we're in this together kind of thing. Tell me what's really going on. And you can have that conversation much more candidly with somebody um, that, that you know and that you've worked with than you can with somebody new. And so when you're with someone new, there's a bit of a, you know, I used the metaphor of a dance before, but there is that metaphor that makes its way in until you've sort of solidified a working relationship or, or a relationship in general. Um, but thinking about it from that point of view and thinking about how to come at this from, say, a fear, a worry, a concern might help you to get over the, the hump of sort of in your mind of I'm really struggling to work with this person or to understand where they're coming from. Awesome. You talk about the competency to empathize with others so that you can 
be persuasive to them and speak to their interests. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, so just to be clear, I mean, empathy is different than sympathy. So Carl Rogers, the eminent psychologist, said empathy is non-judgmentally entering somebody else's world. Now, that's incredibly hard when you think about it, because it's hard enough to judgmentally enter somebody else's word, let alone non-judgmentally. But, but it, what it's really talking about is understanding. Um, it's not about, so to me, sympathy is agreement. Um, empathy is, is genuinely trying to understand where the other person's coming from. And there's a, there's a great story. So I worked on a project in the Middle East for about 10 years, and I, was, and I came across this story one time, and it epitomizes to me what it really takes to empathize. So the story basically goes that there was a guy from, let's just say the United States who went to the Middle East um, for a bit of a holiday and he was staying at a hotel on the outskirts of a desert and was curious to experience the desert, despite you know the people at the hotel saying, be careful, you know the desert is vast and you can get lost and blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And um, so he started out uh, and uh, before he knew it, you know the hotel was out of sight and he got a bit lost. and. He was getting a little concerned. He was getting low on water, etc. And then he saw a Bedouin man off in the distance. Bedouin men, for, for those of you who don't know, are sort of nomadic peoples who live in the desert and and wander uh, and and tend to their sheep and goats and things along those lines and and live out in the desert. So th- this this gentleman from the U.S. was relieved to have seen the Bedouin man. So he started to make his way over to him to ask him how he might get back to the hotel. So. As he gets up to the better man, he says, excuse me, sir, how far to th- this hotel? Better man looks at him, doesn't say anything. The American thinks to himself, hmm, maybe, you know, there's a language problem, so I should slow things down a little bit. So he says, excuse me, sir, how far to this hotel? Again, nothing. So he throws his hands up and starts walking away. And um, after about 10 seconds, the Bedouin man yells out, it's going to take you about 15 minutes if you keep walking in that direction. And so the American spins around and he says, well, why didn't you tell me that the first time I asked you? He said, because I didn't know how fast you walked. And <laughs> the reason I share that story is because it would have been very easy for him to say, oh, it's you know half an hour that way. But what he did was he took the time to gather some information to really genuinely say, what is this person's challenge? What is this person's, um, where are they coming from? What's their difficulty? And it's very hard for us to do that because we're not that person. But we can make an effort. So if I'm dealing with somebody, I'll think, you know, I wonder if, you know, they're getting pressure from somewhere else. Um, and that's the reason they're not saying yes, because they seem amenable to saying yes. Right. So why is that? And I think you really need to dig in and you need to think, OK, is there somebody that I know that knows this person that might be able to give me a little bit of insight into the culture of the organization or into what they're doing or how they do things here? So empathy is is really important. It takes a lot of work to genuinely um, get there. Uh, it's not nearly as easy as just saying, I wonder what's important to them. Um, it really requires some concerted effort. And on the flip side, you know, is assertiveness, um, which is a, a really important skill in negotiations to be able to assert effectively for yourself. Um, and most people confuse assertiveness with aggressiveness. So as my colleague William Murray likes to likes to explain it, assertive uh, aggressiveness is standing on somebody else's toes. Assertiveness is standing on your own two feet. And from my point of view, you can't be an effective negotiator unless you assert 
effectively for yourself. And you also can't be an effective negotiator if you aggressively stand on somebody else's toes because you'll burn the relationship and any bridges that you might have. Can you talk a little bit about how someone develops the skill to assert themselves and their interests um, more effectively? Yeah, the biggest the biggest challenge is the questioning of whether you're worth certain things. For example, I see a lot of people saying, yeah, but I don't deserve that or I don't feel like I should have that. Um, and you have to ask yourself, why do you think that? Why do you feel like the other person has every right to what they want, but you don't either? Um, without generalizing, I mean, I the the master's degree program that I direct is at a at a university called Bay Path University, which is out in Western Massachusetts. And um, at the undergraduate level, it's a it's a women's university in Massachusetts. Um, it has to be multiple genders at, at the graduate level. But what I noticed is that basically, you know, at that level, about 80% of my students are women, something along those lines, and you know, the other 20 are, are men. And what I see is, and again, I'm going to generalize here a little bit, but one of the biggest challenges for women, and I think there's a cultural factor involved in this, a strong one, is that they struggle with assertion for themselves. They can assert when they're asserting on the behalf of others, whether it's their children or a colleague or something like that, they will assert very effectively. But there's a story that a lot of women have been told that you don't deserve this and so you shouldn't ask for it. And in fact, you know, when you look at the data around, you know, salary negotiations, there's been a lot made that women don't ask. And part of the challenge within that, and I wouldn't say it's complete, but part of it is this sort of feeling that I don't deserve that. And you have to ask yourself, why do I feel like that? Why do I not feel like I have every right to ask for this? Because the person on the other side of the table is asking for it. And I'm okay with that. So why shouldn't I be able to ask? So it's really an internal conversation um, when it comes to assertiveness. And, you know, I'll tell you that when I, in any of the teaching training work that I do, I say to the folks that I'm working with, um, look, half of your problems and challenges when it comes to negotiation are out there with the people you deal with, the dynamics that are involved, and the other half are within you. And this is an example of something that's within you. This is a conversation you have to say to yourself, um, I am worthy of this and there's no reason I shouldn't be asking for it. And that's how you move into an assertive and not at the expense of the other person, but, um, but that you have every right to kind of believe that, Hey, you know, um, this is an interest I have and there's no reason I shouldn't have it. And so it, it really is much more of an internal conversation about the meaning that you're placing on your own needs and things like that. Again, I think this is the stuff that you're saying is awesome. In the negotiator and you, you also talk about shifting, and I think this is related, shifting from a mindset of competition to cooperation. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important and how people can implement this in a practical way? Yeah, I mean, I touched on this earlier, um, you know, when I said that your mindset was really critical. I mean, look, in general, when we compete for things, um, you know, and life is typically a bit of a mixture of competition and cooperation and, and things like that. But when we compete, we tend to hold, uh, we hold back information. We hold our cards close to the chest, if you will. And, you know, there's, there's sort of two approaches, two general approaches to negotiation. One um, is more of a positional approach to negotiation where we do hold back information and 
Uh, we don't share things. And that, you know, that was a typical approach to negotiation for many, many years. Um, and, and that's what people thought they should be doing. And in fact, it's why a lot of people don't like negotiation. I mean, if you just take the idea of negotiating for a new car, right? Um, a lot of people dislike that process because they go in, they feel like the dealer is manipulating them. They're, you know, there's a guy, the salesperson is running back and forth to the, the manager who's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And you feel like somehow something's not right, like they're trying to take advantage of you, et cetera. And that all is Im embedded in a competitive way of seeing things that I'm, you know, a win-lose way of doing things. And, you know, if, if I'm not going to get it, they will and vice versa. And I don't find that a lot of negotiations are like that. Yes, there are parts of negotiation where you have to compete around resources, but there's a lot of things that people want and need that are are much more likely to come out in a more collaborative environment. So I'll give you just a small example of what I mean. When I, I often get asked by people, so if I'm going to negotiate salary, like what do I do? And I say, the first thing you do is don't think about the money. And they're like, but isn't that what salary negotiation is all about? And I say, yes and no. Um, the conversation about money will be there. But if you ask yourself, why is it I want to work here? What are the things that make um, working in a place great and a place I want to be, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that you value. And those things only come out in a more of a collaborative conversation. So for example, if you want to ask for flex time or telecommuting or, uh, you know, adjustments and benefits or the possibility of a bonus or whatever, like there are a bunch of things that you can ask for if you're thinking about the value that things bring to you. And if you can get into a mode with the other person where you can have a broader conversation about the job and what would be of, of importance to you. And you really can't have that conversation when you're in a competitive mode. Um, and so that's the biggest thing that I see is that it, it's a mindset related that if you and I are viewing a negotiation process as a win-lose scenario, then we're going to end up holding everything back, not sharing information. And as I mentioned, information is the currency of negotiation. And so um, if I can move from that into more of a collaborative way of doing things where I say, listen, you know, in order to maximize the value of whatever it is we're doing, like we need to share some information here. And that only happens if you've got that sort of collaborative mindset. Um, it doesn't mean that you are naive or like completely dive in when the other side is holding back. It means you can send out some trial balloons and say, listen, you know, I'm going to share something with you that's important to me. And my expectation is you're going to do the same. And if you don't, then I know what game we're playing, so to speak. Uh, so you have to protect yourself a little bit. Um, but you also want to try to shift the conversation in that direction. I think that's awesome. The, the thing that came up for me as you were saying that is one of the things that I've experienced is that's also a foundation of connection, right? It's when people begin to hold back and compartmentalize and they put up different types of walls because they're scared to share things. That's when uh, connection either breaks down or it doesn't get nurtured to its full potential. I know we're getting towards the end of our time. Any other sort of words of wisdom for the listeners, Joshua? Just, I mean, 
You know, I think if people can get their head around the notion that you negotiate every day all the time and to not be afraid of this, to embrace it, because if you do, um, you'll see that over time you can actually manage this. There's a lot of information out there on how to negotiate effectively. Um, so in addition to embracing it, you need to educate yourself. You know, I mean, I, I mentioned before about car dealer negotiations. Um, one of the interesting things about that is those negotiations have changed dramatically because what the car dealers used to have that the um, purchaser didn't was knowledge and information about what things really cost, et cetera. And all of that information is now on the web. So they have to negotiate differently. Um, and, and so, you know, try to see the process of negotiation as a part of life and do your homework you know, know what it is that you really want and need from a situation. And when you do that, you're going to be much less likely to make mistakes. You have a, when you know what your objective is, it's, it forms a bit of a, a North star and you can always ask yourself, well, is that offer, um, you know, getting me closer to that objective? And if it isn't, um, then you need to say no. And frankly, you know, you're much better off saying no to a bad offer than you are. Yes. Because, um, you'll realize in the end that, that it didn't serve you to do that. So, you know, I would say those two things would be really valuable for your listeners is to embrace negotiation as an everyday life occurrence and educate yourself about the dynamics, the nuances, and some of the things that we've been talking about. Awesome. Your favorite resources for doing that? Oh, I mean, Google's a great one, but I mean, if you want some specific titles, you know, there's a great book in, in negotiation that was written in 1981 that is still on the bestseller list that sort of changed the landscape of negotiation. And that's called Getting to Yes. Um, and that was written by Roger Fisher and my colleague, William Urey. But there are a number of offshoots. So for example, William, um, I worked on a book with him called The Power of a Positive No. And so The Power of a Positive No is how do you say no to those agreements, those offers that are put in front of you that don't meet your interests without destroying the relationship or the deal? And then he just wrote another one about something that we've been talking about, which he called getting to yes with yourself. And it's about those dynamics and other kinds of things that, um, you know, that we've been discussing. And finally, I would say there's a podcast that I did uh, for about three years is about 150 episodes that folks can tune into. They're five to maybe 10 minutes long on all kinds of different um, aspects of negotiation. It's called the, the negotiating tip of the week. Um, and they're out there in the cyber world somewhere. Dr. Weiss, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about everything that Dr. Weiss has done um, or is doing. We're going to post some links, including the podcast and his books. We're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so that you can find out about him more easily. Thank you again for taking the time to chat with me. My pleasure. Take care and best of luck to everybody. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, 
go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.